0: Um. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement. It's my pleasure and honor to be with you this evening. Tony will be back with you on Monday. Before we start the program, I want to remind you about a special opportunity to support. Washington Watch and the Family Research Council this December. Thanks to a special year-end challenge match by Friends of FRC, your gift will be doubled if received before December 31st. To take advantage of this opportunity, call 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's 800 800- or tonyperkins.com. And a reminder that this and everything FRC does is made possible exclusively because of friends like you. And we do greatly appreciate your prayers and support this year and every year. Today on the program, public documents show that the Children's Hospital in San Francisco is working with the school district there to help kids transition their gender without their parents' awareness. We'll give you the details of this shocking story coming up. Also, the White House keeps a list of countries of particular concern. One country that has a terrible record on human rights is not on the list, and some people want to know why. And we'll talk about that coming up as well. Also, as you know by now, the Disrespect for Marriage Act has passed Congress, and supporters are using a lot of religious language to justify the redefinition of marriage, Americans no longer seem to agree about what is good. What does that mean for the future of our country? We'll discuss it in our worldview segment with David Claussen later in the program today. But first, our headline. Last week, Twitter revealed that its executives routinely colluded with the Biden campaign throughout the 2020 presidential campaign cycle. And yesterday, Twitter provided a second round of disclosures demonstrating how the tech giant throttled accounts due to their ideology, despite long denying the practice. The accounts suppressed, often referred to as Shadowland, were primarily those of major conservative figures, but also included politicians during their election cycles. What else did we learn from yesterday's revelations, and what can we conclude going forward? Joining me to discuss all of it is Scott Shepard, director of the Free Enterprise Project. Scott, welcome back to Washington Watch.
1: Thanks so much, Joseph. Great to be with you.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. And Scott, for those who may not be on Twitter, and and thankfully, most of America is made up of people who are not on Twitter, and and we're we're grateful for that. But provide some quick background uh, to catch people up. What is this story, and why does it matter so much?
1: Well, I'm proud to tell you, Joseph, that I'm one of those majority of Americans who aren't on Twitter. I think it's poison. (laughs) But but what uh, what happens on twitter is of course people send messages to one another and as it turns out as we've discovered despite all the lies that the previous uh, uh board and management at twitter said the the management there was carefully watching everything everybody sent including having access to the private messages the direct messages the dms that um that people were sending back and forth and they were actively suppressing shadow banning uh not promoting, uh, not allowing promotion of or distribution of conservative opinions and the thoughts of of high profile and even low profile. Because it happened to us at the Free Enterprise Project, and we're not we're not worldwide names um, of of uh, um, messages and thoughts if they fell on the conservative side of things.
0: Now you say this happened to you at the Free Enterprise Project. How do you know that? Has Twitter told you that? How can someone or an organization find out if they were on the list of organizations or people being shadow banned?
1: Well, they haven't, they haven't told us yet. We know it because uh, we could see in the way that, uh, um, that there were retweets of our um, postings. They just slowed down, dialed back all of a sudden uh, on various occasions, and you could tell what was going on. Everybody Uh, All conservatives knew how to tell what was going on. But I do think that if uh, if Elon Musk uh, really does care about the the future of the Republican, about human freedom, then he should uh, release those lists the same way that when uh, when Nixon was under fire in the 70s, the list, his enemies lists were released. We need to know who were the enemies of Twitter, because even though that administration, that executive board, uh, and Twitter is gone. We all know fully and completely well that the same thing was going on at Facebook and it has to be stopped there. And it has to so really honestly, some people ought to be going to jail.
0: Well, that and now that comparison that you make to the Nixon administration and their enemies list is an interesting one. And Elon Musk, and again catching people up who may not be part of the details of this story, Elon Musk, who's recently purchased Twitter uh, because he says he is free speech pro free speech and he wants to turn Twitter into a free speech platform, has said that everyone will be able to find out if they were actually on the list of the old regime of those who were shadow banned. Now, one of the reasons that this is controversial is because despite suspicion that this is what Twitter and other big tech companies have been doing, they have vehemently denied this for years, including Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, until just months ago. This is what he had to say back in 2018. Let's play clip three.
2: Shadow banning is a
1: very widely defined term. There's not one single definition. Um, So definition that we found that seems to resonate with the most people is um, you know not amplifying particular messages or if someone puts out a a tweet hiding that tweet from everyone uh, without that person who tweeted it knowing about it so but the real question behind the question is are we doing something according to political ideology or viewpoints and we are not period
0: Scott Shepard, what's your reaction to that?
1: Well, now, Jack is a strange character, and it's just within the realm of possibility that Jack had no idea what he was talking about. But we have to find out. We have to get him, the The, the incoming House should get him before them, should subpoena him, should put him under oath, and should ask him those questions again. And it can't stop with him. Uh, the His successor CEO should be brought forward. Vijaya Gade, who was their chief censor, who said point blank, this isn't happening, and it certainly isn't happening on the basis of political uh, viewpoint or affiliation. She ought to be called forward. Remember, Steve Bannon is in jail right now, or was put in jail for a while because he refused a congressional subpoena. And um, and you know when when uh, lies occur under oath, jail terms can can follow. And so. We ought to be hearing from these these previous uh, directors. There ought to be a, if we had a competent and non-corrupt SEC, the SEC ought to be looking at the material misrepresentations to shareholders that, that were undertaken by this whole uh, uh, X crowd at Twitter, and then absolutely everybody uh, with responsibility at Facebook, from Deadeye Zuckerberg on down, should be brought to Congress, put under oath, required to say what they knew uh, what they know about what's going on at, at Facebook, what did go on, because they've made the same uh, absurd uh, assertions that they haven't been shadow banning and that their disinformation reviews aren't aren't partisan. Let's let's have those questions asked again under oath. And then let's uh, have the Steve Bannon treatment apply uh, universally.
0: Now, Scott, the, the point that you make there, um, because the Jack Dorsey clip that we played, that of course is in a media interview and, and he's not obligated by the law to tell the truth to the media necessarily. But when you go to Congress and ask questions, you are, you are under oath. They're asking, answering questions. And there seems to be some strong indications. And of course, there's, there's information we don't know. And perhaps Jack Dorsey was unaware of things that were happening in his company. That's always within the range of possibility. But does this have the potential to end up with people in jail because of what they said to Congress as a res, um, to cover up what they were doing behind the scenes at Twitter?
1: Well, certainly if they lied under oath, um, that's that's the FBI's favorite way to trap people it wants to put in jail. They ask questions that they know the answers to and then, um, and, and then prosecute when the answers differ in any way from, from, from their prior knowledge. Now we all know that uh, uh, Gotti was lying. We don't know that he's, he's on his own cloud, but, but we know Gotti was knowingly lying. We know that the Paraj um, uh, Garawal, I think, was his name, the, the, the previous CEO. We know there were liars up and down that um, that institution. We know there are liars up and down Facebook. I'd like to see Zuckerberg uh, put under oath. I'd like to see um, Nick Clegg, his mm-hmm. chief censor and head of regulatory operations, put under oath and ask these questions. And remember, um, executives at, at publicly traded companies, have obligations not to lie about material facts almost ever, whether it's in a uh, um, a meeting or it's in a uh, 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 an interview with reporters. They have obligations to not lie about material facts. This seems like a material fact, and uh, it seems like the sort of thing that the Securities and Exchange Commission that's as politicized as it can be, and so won't do it now, but should be looking into once it's not corrupt anymore.
0: Well, you mentioned the potential there that the FBI would look into that. There's a lot of concern uh, these days that the FBI is, in fact, a fairly partisan organization, and there are whistleblowers from the FBI indicating as much, which calls into question whether, uh, how aggressively they might pursue this, even if the facts suggested that they had lied under oath. Corrine Jean-Pierre has been asked about this story this week on Monday, and and this was her response to the questions about the revelation that the Biden campaign in 2016 was actually, or in 20. 20, I'm sorry, was collaborating with Twitter, was sending messages to Twitter saying, please remove these messages. And, and that's exactly what Twitter was doing. She was asked about that. Here's what she had to say. I want to play clip one and clip two. Let's just play those back to back.
3: We see this as a, a, an interesting or a coincidence, if I may, that uh, uh, that he would so haphazardly, uh, Twitter was so haphazardly push this distraction uh, that is a that is a full of uh, old news. If you think it. what is happening, it's it's not. It's, it's frankly, it's not healthy. It won't do anything to help a single American improve their lives. And so, look, this is an, we we see as that is an interesting, uh, you know, cons, uh, you know, coincidence, uh, and uh, we, and you know, it's a distraction.
0: Scott Shepard, is this merely a distraction that won't do anything to help any Americans' lives?
1: Well, I mean, as a first fact, Corinne never knows what she's talking about, about anything. If she speaks, you can be sure that it's wrong or false. Those are the only two uh, settings that she has. But but within that fact, I mean, this is the old Clinton playbook. Uh, once something bad, they, they deny, it, and then when they're caught, they say, oh, well, this is just old news. Well, it's not old news because you haven't admitted it yet. And the, the authoritarianism of this administration in that it thinks that it's not going to help anybody uh, for the administration to be forced to come clean about its lies, about its collusion, about its interference in a, in a free election, about its um, uh, combining with, with uh, private enterprise to deny Americans their civil rights, including uh, First Amendment civil rights, that that's not getting that out and fixing it's not going to help anybody. This, the administration just as corrupt as it can be, just as Twitter uh, was uh, uh polluting and as corrupt as it could be. Because remember uh, the the new information from today and yesterday that James Baker, the former head of something at the FBI, became one of the heads of of censorship at Twitter and was caught by Elon Musk um, taking uh, uh, the editing information, censoring right down to his last day to hide the FBI's collusion with Twitter to deny Americans their civil rights. You're right that the FBI is corrupt, not just a little bit. But a reckoning has to come, and and God willing, it will come. And and a lot of the deep state will get reviewed, too.
0: Scott, there's so much more to this. The Republican majority in the House I know is going to investigate, but we're out of time for now. We'll continue this conversation another day. Thanks for being with us. All right.
1: Thank you so much, Joseph.
0: Coming up next, controversy in San Francisco with the Children's Hospital. We'll tell you about it when we come back. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this
1: journey, visit frc.org. bible
5: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Public schools in San Francisco partnered with a local hospital's adolescent gender center. For at least the past four years in order for their teachers to receive training on how to interact with transgender students. The trainings, which came to light due to a Freedom of Information Act request from the organization Parents Defending Education, included role-playing scenarios on how to arrange gender counseling for minors without parental consent. Now, what else did these internal documents reveal? Joining me now to discuss it? Is Alex Nestor. She's an investigative fellow with Parents Defending Education. Alex, welcome to Washington Watch. Joseph, great to be on with you. Now, first, tell us what prompted you guys to file these FOIA requests in the first place?
4: So, this is something that I think has become a huge issue that we're starting to see um, a trend across the country is gender clinics becoming, you know, involved with local school districts. We saw this first with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, In this case, the gender clinic there was giving presentations to school districts across the state of Pennsylvania. And these, uh, you know, trainings specifically told teachers and district administrators to not tell parents when their kids decided to change genders. So after we saw that FOIA, we decided that, you know, maybe it would be worth FOIAing other um, districts for their relationships with gender clinics. And this is uh, another one that we found, unfortunately.
0: So essentially what you found in San Francisco is what you expected to find?
4: You know, when it comes to these things, I never quite know what to expect to find here. But, yes, I mean, we saw in this case the district brought forward some examples, some real examples of issues that they've had with uh, children in the district that are experiencing gender dysphoria. They brought them to these uh, practitioners at the clinic to, you know, work through uh with them this was way back in 2018 and what we saw was exactly what you said in the introduction you know this gender clinic specifically asked the school counselors in this district how they can get kids mental health training without parental involvement or consent so unfortunately yes this is sort of what we were expecting to find um unfortunately in this case
0: well also unfortunately It seems that these are not isolated incidences, and it's not just kind of rogue children's hospitals doing this. And in fact, from the highest levels of our government, this sort of activity has been encouraged. Here's Rachel Levine, who, of course, is one of America's most, um, most famous transgender individuals, Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, calling for doctors to be trans ambassadors. This clip is from September of this year. Let's play clip four. I encourage all of you to think of yourselves as ambassadors to your communities, ambassadors for science, ambassadors for compassion, and ambassadors for care. These conversations don't have to be limited or restricted to a medical setting. Offer yourselves as informational resources, not just for youth, but for school teachers, principals, school boards, professional organizations, recreation centers, county commissioners, and others who would benefit from this information in your perspective. Please, proactively seek opportunities to speak about what you know. Alex, does it seem likely, you know, you've talked about Pennsylvania and now San Francisco, but do you think this is likely happening all over the country where children's hospitals are actively working with the school district to do things behind the back of the parents?
4: Well, Joseph, I can certainly tell you that this is happening elsewhere, and it's just going to take a lot of time and a lot of uh, work to find these, to, to file the FOIAs and find the documents and figure out what's going on. And look, let's note the years here. In this case, this uh, relationship between the gender clinic and the school district started four years ago. So they have quite a head start on us, but you know, we're, we're working hard to catch up with them.
0: Alex, undoubtedly there are parents who are hearing this, watching this right now, and they're outraged at the possibility, because this is not something we're unfamiliar with, right? Because Planned Parenthood has had this relationship not for four years, but almost 40 years in some cases with school districts where they have been uh, creating the curriculum, working with school districts to provide abortions in many cases for for children behind the backs of their parents. Now it looks like this is happening on the trans issue as well. What are you recommending for parents?
4: Well, look, a silver lining from the pandemic was that parents really started to get involved in their schools, and we really encourage that. We want parents to show up. We want parents to ask questions. We want parents to file public records requests, and we're happy to help them do that. Look, more than anything, it's important that parents know what's going on in their kids' schools and in their kids' lives. They have a right to. They're the people who care about kids the most. And we encourage and want to support parents in their effort to, to do that. So, yeah, parents should get involved. They need to know what's going on. And if, if their school district won't tell them directly, then they have a right to file public, public records requests and figure out what's going on. And we're happy to help them do it.
0: And let's talk about that briefly, because that probably sounds daunting to people. What You know, many people don't know what a public record request is, much less how to fill one out. Um, somebody might be inspired to do that. What steps would you recommend they take? How can they get in touch with you? How difficult is that?
4: You can get in touch with us at our website at defendinged.org, but to file a public records request, it does seem very daunting, and it's really not. Your school district should have a public records officer. Their email should be available on your district website, and if it's not, you can email the superintendent's office or someone else at uh, your district to figure out who the right person is to send that information to. Each state has their own laws, so we uh, you know, recommend that parents and others sort of do a little bit of digging on what their public records request laws look like in their state. That can be a little daunting, too. But like I said, we're here and we're happy to help. You can find us at defendinged.org and get in touch with us there.
0: Alex, as you're breaking this story, do you have any reason to believe that this will change the behavior of the children's hospitals involved here?
4: That's a really good question and one I'm afraid I don't necessarily have the answer to. I think what's most important is to shine light, uh, shine light on these issues. I think in some areas, sure, this might scare gender clinics away, but I think, you know, as a society, we're kind of trending toward this more and more. And you can see that by the number of gender clinics clinics, specifically pediatric gender clinics, that are popping up all over the country. So I'm not quite sure if this trend is going to stop anytime soon, but it's really important to expose what's going on so parents know what districts are doing this, what their kids are being exposed to, and you know, know that they have options there, too, to send their kids elsewhere, potentially, um, or you know, just fight back when it's going on in their kids' schools.
0: Alex and Esther, Parents Defending Education. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for what you're doing. And I know we will talk again.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Coming up next, a new report from the Family Research Council on countries of particular concern. There's some disturbing news from Nigeria in particular. We'll tell you about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
5: Are you a university student?
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony and enjoying the sounds of the season as I do. Last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the U.S. had designated China, Iran, and Russia as among the nations considered countries of particular concern under the Religious Freedom Act. Now, the country of particular concern, or CPC designation, is an important instrument in The designation often brings severe diplomatic and economic consequences. But according to a recent report from the Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty, this foreign policy tool is often used ineffectively in the push for religious freedom throughout the world. Joining me now to discuss this is the author of the report, Ariel Del Turco. She's an assistant director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. Ariel, good to see you today.
2: Good to be with you, Joseph.
0: Now, I've got this kind of introductory question here about countries of particular concern because we talked about the countries on this list, talked about China, Iran, and Russia, and the potential consequences of being listed as a country of particular concern. But, uh, China also has a, uh, a favored nation status designation with respect to our trade relationship with them. How can it be that we, we have designated them as a favored trade partner, but they're also a country of particular concern when it comes to human rights?
2: Yeah, so you've hit the nail on the head, Joseph. So this is a designation essentially calling these countries some of the worst in the world on religious freedom. Uh, And it's supposed to essentially do two things. Firstly, it's a naming and shaming tool. It's embarrassing to these countries. Why would you want to be called one of the worst in the world? And then secondarily, it's supposed to carry some type of economic consequence. Uh, We're certainly not supposed to give them our most favored nation uh, trading status. Uh, So you can see already a breakdown in how this tool is being used or misused over the years.
0: And so tell us, how is this supposed to be used? Have we seen examples of this designation actually helping advance human rights?
2: Only in a few instances have we seen this be effective. So we've seen it be effective in Vietnam. Uh, several years ago, uh, Vietnam was about to be put on the CPC list, uh, but that was a country that really wanted to avoid that designation. So they actually worked with the United States, and we crafted an agreement where the government actually committed to um, improve religious freedom conditions in several areas, and we agreed that we would consider removing them from the list. Uh, so that. It really is um, up to the uh, people that are using it, so up to the administration officials. It's just a tool, Uh, so we need to wield it well.
0: Now, we've seen in other contexts recently the way in which our foreign policy seems to be inconsistent with our stated values, the way we're dealing with Russia, continuing to basically allow energy to be purchased from them. We've recently expanded our our purchase of fuel from Venezuela, despite some egregious problems in that country, essentially because we are unwilling to become energy independent as a nation and produce oil for ourselves. But there's one country here that it seems that we're not dependent upon at all. And you specifically highlight Nigeria in this report and the fact that they were once designated a country of particular concern. They no longer are. What would the reason for that be?
2: Well, the Biden State Department has given no official reason or explanation uh, for removing Nigeria's CPC designation that was put in at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, And that's really to the horror of human rights activists who are watching uh, atrocities unfold in this country, uh, specifically against Christians and Muslims, um, who are just terrorized and... The government has much more of a capacity to step in and prevent that than they have. So a lot of people are asking why.
0: And and be specific, if you can, in our last couple of minutes, what is happening in Nigeria that people should be so concerned about that the State Department should be so concerned about?
2: Yeah, well, just a few days ago, uh, Reuters issued a massive report um, detailing at least 10,000 forced abortions against Nigerian women and girls who were taken captive by Boko Haram. But it wasn't Boko Haram who did the forced abortions. They were supposedly rescued by the Nigerian army. Um, But when they were rescued, they were taken to these mysterious, secretive uh, facilities, sometimes medical facilities, sometimes military bases and they were uh, given injections or drugs that they were told were uh, for their benefit and, uh, oh, it will help you with your weakness or exhaustion. And instead, they were actually forced abortions. So the girls were really surprised when this happened. Sometimes it happened in roomfuls of 50 or 60 uh women and girls who were impregnated by Boko Haram terrorists, uh, but then it was the government that was committing this horrific act against them. So this is just one in a series of human rights abuses that the Nigerian government has been directly tied to. And so when the State Department um, looks at Nigeria and tiptoes around, oh, well, we don't want to give you a country of particular concern designation because... Uh we still want to be on good terms for whatever reason. Uh the rest of the world looks at that and does not take our human rights record seriously.
0: In Ariel to that specific example that you just gave of ten thousand forced abortion, which is terrible to think about, am I correct in believing that in Nigeria abortion is not even legal?
2: abortion is not even legal, and it's not culturally embraced at all. Nigeria is mostly Christian or Muslim, uh, so you have these conservative cultures, and I think that makes this story all the more shocking.
0: Indeed, it does, and it's, terrible the, the, the level of, of of abuse here, the scale of the abuse is just difficult to think about. Uh, but there is certainly a, an understanding of why this country of particular concern designation is necessary. And we certainly hope that the uh, they will get some more teeth. Ariel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Coming up next, our Weekly World conversation. What does the recodification of the redefinition of marriage mean?
5: This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch, and we are indeed... All dreaming of a white Christmas. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony with you on this lovely Friday afternoon. And it is lovely, despite all of the brokenness in the world. Uh, because Jesus remains on the throne, we take great confidence in that. And we are going to talk about some of the brokenness in the world in this segment. Because, as of yesterday, both chambers of Congress have voted to approve the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which is really a disrespect for marriage act leaving President Biden's signature as the final step to codifying the Supreme Court's decision redefining marriage into federal law. Now, floor amendments by some members of Congress before and after yesterday's vote in the House provided an insight into the worldview that would lead someone to not see natural marriage as God's design for humanity. Joining me now to discuss all of it is David Kloss, and he's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview here at Family Research Council. David, good to see you this Friday
7: Hey, good to see you and be with you as well, Joseph.
0: Well, I want to break down with you a lot of the commentary that was made by members of Congress, because, of course, uh, they heard from a lot of uh, their constituents, and a lot of those constituents are within the FRC community. I know that there were more than five, 500,000 contacts made by FRC supporters uh, to their congressional offices, and there was uh, at least one member of Congress who said that this was the Fiercest opposition they'd seen to a piece of legislation, which is really saying something um, because it's a lame duck session, right? It it Technically, they would say, didn't even change anything because of the Obergefell decision. But we know that the moral significance of this can hardly be overstated. Now, on the floor, I want to start with Representative Good, Representative Bob Good, who's a friend of the program. And he talked about whether this means America is ceasing to be good. Let's play clipping. As President Reagan once said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. All great nations and societies fall from within. With Democrats threatening all sense of values and decency and family
6: today, sexualizing kids in school, redefining sex and gender, trans surgery and mutilation of minors, it makes no sense for any Republican to support their efforts to codify their views on marriage. David Clawson,
0: is that an overstatement?
7: I don't think it is an overstatement. Um, I was thinking about the Obergefell decision earlier in the day. You know, that's only seven years ago, and just to to think about the conversations, Joseph, you and I even have on this program about preferred pronoun coercion and uh, the stuff we've seen in Loudoun County with uh, the sexual assault for those who are identifying as transgender. The the, the things we're seeing, Joseph, we wouldn't have even imagined uh, seven years ago. You know, the slippery slope turns out to be a lot slipperier than we really thought. And so I, I think this is a moment of profound uh, moral magnitude in, in this country that now we went from, the, you know, five unelected bureaucrats imposing same-sex marriage in all 50 states to now a majority of senators and uh, representatives in the House of Representatives uh, putting into federal law a, a lie about something as fundamental as marriage. And so I think this is a time of profound moral reflection. And I do want to add, Joseph, you know, I'm a little discouraged. I know a lot of our viewers are discouraged. Uh, But the Lord's still in control. And I I also want to thank uh, the 500,000 people around the country uh, that made their voice heard. And we did peel some Republicans off who had previously voted for the bill in the summer. And then when they had another opportunity this week, they changed their vote. And so uh FRC constituents uh did make a difference they were heard and uh that's something to be proud of
0: That's exactly right uh We were heard, and and it's interesting in public policy and really in all of life, one of the important lessons in this is that nothing is ever over. If an election goes your way or legislation goes your way, uh, it doesn't mean that you've won forever. And if legislation or an election doesn't go your way, it doesn't mean that you've lost forever. And particularly on this issue, I think it's important for us to take heart in the fact that the day is never going to arrive where we look back and we say, oh, yes, that was the moment. In history, when we realized men and women were functionally the same, the differences between them are irrelevant. And it doesn't matter if kids have both a mother and father. We just need to have adults in their life that care about them. And that's all we need for a thriving, flourishing society. That day will never arrive. Now, we don't know how long it's going to take before we as a civilization are able to look back and say, man, that was a mistake. And what we also don't know is how much damage is going to be done culturally and to individual lives while we continue this this fiction that uh, that marriage can be whatever we want it to be and kids don't need their mother and father in their lives, right? But the day is never going to come where, uh, where history has vindicated uh, the lie that we are embracing right now.
7: No, you're absolutely right, Joseph. And I think it's important to just make the point uh, that it, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It, it, let me say this. It, it matters greatly uh, what our government does. You know, our law is inherently pedagogical, and it's going to teach people uh, a view of what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. Uh, so our, our government does matter. But on this issue of marriage, you know, it doesn't actually matter what the Supreme Court says, what the U.S. Senate says, what the House of Representatives says, or even what the President of the United States says. At the end of the day, uh, marriage is marriage. Uh, Marriage is that covenant relationship between a man and a woman uh, that was God's good design. Uh, That's what's foundational for flourishing communities. It's the bedrock of civilization. And so that, I think that's part of why myself and others who, you know, hold to that biblical sexual ethic, we are, we are grieving in a sense because our law is now going to teach uh, future generations a, a lie about marriage. And that, what that's going to mean, Joseph, in our churches, we just need to double down even more yeah. and make sure that we tell the truth about marriage. We, we explain God's good design from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. Uh, we, we need to do even more work. Uh, persuading uh, our fellow neighbors, uh, our friends, our family, uh, that God's design is actually what's good uh, for all people.
0: David, I want to refer back to the the clip that I played from Representative Good, uh, who was quoting Ronald Reagan when he said, when America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And we know that people on the other side of this issue actually make Strong moral, even religious arguments in support of this. And I think the reality that we have to confront is that Americans no longer agree about what good is, right? We say, oh, we want to be good. They would say we want America to be good. Uh, We would say that. They would say that. Everyone says we want America to be good. The problem is we mean very different things when we say that. We have a different definition of what good means. And fundamentally, How can we be the United States of America if we don't have a shared vision of what good is?
7: Yeah, no, Joseph, it it makes it more difficult. And I think that what we see and the rise of the divisiveness in our political discourse, you know, it just seems, you know, just not that long ago, you know, generation ago, the different political parties uh, increased. You know, they had their differences, but on major fundamental issues, there was there was agreement. There, there was at least a consensus on um, basic truths. And we increasingly don't have that. Uh, I would argue that's, that's the sign of a worldview divide in this country. Uh, we talk about that a lot, Joseph, how few uh, Americans actually have a biblical worldview. That number is, has plummeted in recent years. And, and so I think in moving forward, as this country continues to fracture, as we continue to lose that, that biblical basis of morality uh, that's been with us for generations, it's increasingly going to be more and more difficult Uh, to see what us as Christians would call the good, the true, and the beautiful advance in public life and and in our society. So I think it's going to be more and more difficult, which is why we need to, as Christians, uh, double down on being more and more faithful.
0: David, you refer to a cultural divide there. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who is uh, the outgoing Speaker of the House, uh, she had this to say about what this bill is going to do. Let's play clip nine.
3: Once signed into law,
6: the Respect for Marriage Act will help prevent right-wing extremists from upending the lives of loving couples, traumatizing kids across the country, and turning back the clock,
0: on hard-won progress. So, David, is the result of this bill simply that people like you and me are no longer going to be allowed to traumatize children?
7: Not at all, and that's a, a typical politician speak using the incredible hyperbole. You know, it's really interesting to hear outgoing Speaker Pelosi talk about this issue. She had an op-ed yesterday in the the Washington Post uh, where she she talked about how this is going to bring dignity uh, to same-sex couples. And I think when you hear things like that, you hear rhetoric like that from our politicians, even on the question of dignity, we need to recognize, you know, at the end of the day our laws actually don't confer dignity you and i don't actually confer dignity we just acknowledge dignity we acknowledge something that already exists and so you know it's interesting to look at the rhetoric around this bill and to realize that speaker pelosi leader schumer and others the things they're saying about this bill often are just flat out wrong when they make when they say things like religious liberty is actually protected I believe that this bill actually erodes religious liberty. When they say this is good for families and children, in my view, this is really bad for families and children because it tells a lie that every child doesn't actually need a mom and a dad. And so I think we need to hold up statements like that uh, to some more objective uh, basis.
0: That's well said. um it- Every time we make a decision under the premise that kids don't need both their mother and the father, the world gets worse, right? That that we can take to the bank, and all we're going to do is continue to prove that theory because God did not create the world so that children would be randomly assigned to adults. But, David, there's another statement that I think is a bit more compelling than the one Nancy Pelosi made because that seemed kind of uh, transparently political. The House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, he basically referred to the fact that all men are created equal as justification for the redefinition of marriage. Let's play clip 10. Somehow,
6: we would interpose
0: our own judgment,
6: Denial, denying that all people are created equal and endowed by their creator, not by us, not by the Constitution, by their creator, with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Certainly pursuit of happiness means
0: that you can love whom you choose. Now, David, there's a lot to agree with there. Our rights do come from God. We believe all men are created equal. They don't come from the government. They come from God. Uh, should we conclude, then, that it's important for us to support something like same-sex marriage?
7: Not at all, and you're right, Joseph. Uh, some of the remarks from Steny Hoyer about being made in God's image, and that's where our rights from. That's you know that that's the Christian tradition. That's the the impact and the influence and legacy of Christianity on this country. That's, you know, our Constitution, those who wrote it understood that our rights do from, come from God. But to then say that the pursuit of happiness needs to include this right to marry whom you love and to same-sex marriage, uh, that, that's not true. It, it hasn't been true for 6,000 years. You know, we've talked about this, Joseph. You know, there's other cultures in, our, in ancient history, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, who were fine with homosexuality, but they even understood that you couldn't redefine marriage. Now, you, you shouldn't prioritize adult sexual desire or the urges of two consenting adults over those of children, which is, you know, one of, one of the fruits, one of the goods of marriage. And so, again, what, what Hoyer is doing there, he's conflating two things. He's conflating something that's true, that our rights come from God, and yet the, to imply that that means we should support something that is not just something that us as Christians would oppose, but that's something that I think is going to erode even further the morality of this country and harm children. It just doesn't actually work when you look at the logic of Hoyer's argument
0: and i would add to that that the constitution recognizes that all men are created equal and the law provides equal protection for every single individual it does not provide and never has and never should provide equal protection for every relationship right. it does not treat every relationship the same there's no sane person that would say every relationship that that the in individuals can enter into should be treated equally because primarily they are not equally important to society and for obvious reasons, the most important relationship to society is the relationship that can bring children into the world. Uh, The government has never been primarily interested in the emotional involvement adults have with each other. That's not a reason to be interested in any relationship. But David, the timing of this is perhaps providential because this week is also National Bible Week. And in recognition of National Bible Week, Congressman Glenn Grothman referenced George Washington's belief about what is necessary for national prosperity. And I think it's instructive in the context of our debate over marriage. Let's play clip 13.
1: George Washington
0: said it's impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. Of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity our belief our religious and morality are indispensable supporters clearly if you want to understand the constitution you have to understand the bible and that's why john adams said that the constitution is made only for a more religious people and totally unfit for any other kind
2: david
0: if as john adams said there the uh Constitution is made for a moral and religious people. What does that mean for us in the week that we have redefined marriage in about 40 seconds?
7: Yeah, it's, I think our founders would be shocked if they saw the events of this past week. Uh, you know, we always legislate a form of morality. That's what you're doing when you're legislating. And to go to something as basic as marriage and kind of take a sledgehammer at it, uh, that, it's not good, Joseph. Um, it, I think it's problematic for all the issues we've just said. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the Bible is a book of hope. I think that's been the theme for the National Bible Week. The Bible is hope. And at the end of the day, even though we're discouraged about this vote, the Bible does offer a lot of hope. And those who follow Christ, that's where our stake is at the end of the day, not in our politicians.
0: David Klaassen, as always, thanks for being with us.
7: Thank you, Joseph.
0: And friends, at the end of this interesting week, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. That's guaranteed. But take heart. I have overcome the world. God is not surprised by any of the events of this week. You may be disappointed. He may be, too, as well. But he is not shocked. He is not disturbed. And he is not shaken. And that is one reason why we can fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.